You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. Welcome to Smart Sex, Smart Love. We're talking about sex goes beyond the taboos and talking about love goes beyond the honeymoon. I'm Dr. Joe Court. Thanks for tuning in. Hi, everybody. Today, we're going to be talking about asexuality. My guest this week is here to talk about that. Jared Boot, a doctoral student in clinical psychology at the Michigan School of Psychology, has been a longstanding member of the LGBTQIA Research Forum. One of Jared's main research interests is asexual identity development. He has a passion for asexual inclusion, diversity, and equity. And today, we're going to be talking about all things asexual. Welcome, Jared. Hi, thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm so glad to have you and, and to really unpack this this topic, which some people feel and sometimes I feel it's complicated. It's evolving. It's changing. Um, there's new terms that are um, that like it seems like sometimes asexual is the umbrella term. And then there are all these other terms. And I hope that you'll, you'll unpack all that. Right. You got a lot on your plate. Today. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm glad uh, that you brought that up to start with. Yeah, uh, it is confusing because there are differing definitions out there. Um, One of the definitions that's more limiting is the first uh, definition uh, published in research by Anthony Bozier. He was a British uh, researcher in the early 2000s who defined asexual individuals as just people who with a complete absence of sexual attraction. Um, and since then, uh, people have come up with, uh, differing definitions of asexuality as, uh, it being more of an umbrella term, such as, uh, in one that is inclusive of demisexuals, uh, inclusive of people who identify as gray sexual, um, and things of that nature. And what, um, I can get more into those, uh, uh, subgroup definitions as we go on, but, I, I, I more ascribe to it being uh, an umbrella term because uh, I'm a fan of inclusivity. Uh, the umbrella term I like is uh, little no or no sexual attraction and inclusive of people with differing uh, degrees of sexual attraction. Mm, I like that. So yeah. that, is that your definition of asexual? That's the definition I use. Um, it, um, I was basically citing uh, Chasen in 2011. He was a researcher of asexuality. And um, I like that definition the best. I'm a fan of inclusivity when we can do that. Yes. No, I am too. And can you tell the um, the audience what demisexual means? D-E-M-I sexual. Yeah. Uh, so people who identify as uh, demisexual, um, there is primary uh, sexual attraction and secondary sexual attraction. So primary is the, oh, that person is really attractive. They have the physical features that I want in uh, a partner. Uh, and secondary sexual attraction is where you're building that longstanding emotional bond with someone. Um, so people who are demisexual, they can still aesthetically appreciate physical characteristics of people. But their sexual attraction isn't based on those characteristics. It's only the secondary sexual uh, uh, attraction that they experience to other people. 
So is this what you're saying? Because this is what I've always read, that um, they're not walking around with sexual attraction to, to anyone until it's this one person. And then suddenly they their sexual uh, sexuality is activated toward that one person. Is that right? Or is that different? Uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's right. It can be more than one person, though, if they have like uh, an emotional bond uh, with more than one person. It's just that like if uh, someone who is demisexual met someone who like had all of the physical attributes they find attractive in the bar, they wouldn't go really be able to perform for them uh, until they built that emotional bond or connection with that person. So let me ask you something, because people ask me this when I teach this, they'll say, well, wait a minute, why Why is that under asexual? There's a lot of people, and, and a lot of women will say, a lot of, I feel like I only want to have sex with people that I'm emotionally bonded to, but why would that make me demisexual or under the heading of asexual? Do you, do you have an answer for that? Yeah, so I guess the way that I describe it, sort of along the lines of uh, the analogy uh, that I used uh, just a moment ago, like if, um, for example, if someone came up to you and you were at a club, a bar, or a party, and they were saying all the right things and uh, had all of the characteristics you were looking for in a partner, somebody who is demisexual would not be able to do anything sexual in nature with them uh, because they're, you can't develop secondary sexual attraction in one meeting with a person. Uh, whereas somebody who like uh, values that emotional connection, they can develop it much more uh, rapidly, I suppose. Uh, but somebody who's demisexual, it has to be like this uh, process of building that connection. Okay, got it. So then can you also now define gray sexual, G-R-E-Y sexual? Yeah, so people who are gray sexual, um, it's actually an umbrella term for people who um, uh, express themselves sexually in a way that's different than demisexual and that's different than allosexual, which is what everyone who is not demisexual, asexual, et cetera, is. So um, that would be like uh, what many of the listeners identify as. Uh, it's like comparable to heterosexual. Um, but um, uh, gray sexuals are um, people who like they might masturbate, but not really masturbate to anything. It's more so just for a release, to have the pleasure, uh, something of that nature. Or it could be um, like uh, masturbating to uh, an object rather than a person or like a kink rather than a person. So like if they really um, had a kink for like feet, for example, um, they would masturbate to that, but wouldn't ascribe it to a person. Mm. Okay. um, but, yeah. So then what was the other word you just used? You, you added a word. Yeah, allosexual. So uh, How do you spell like, it? That would be uh, A-L-L-O and uh, then sexual after that. Okay. And um, so what that is, is it's like, uh, so like it's like uh, the vanilla to kink or the heterosexual to homosexual. It's like the, like what, society deems as the like normal or like you automatically are ascribed with this identity. It's what most people would be, allosexual. 
Okay, I see. Now, see, you caught me off guard a little bit because I thought a gray sexual, and I and I want to be clear. I'm glad to learn from you. I thought it was like somebody could have a full whole sex life just with themselves. They could even like be on cam watching porn, watching other having cyber sex. Um, but that they um so but their whole sex life they might never actually meet somebody or do it. But it's it's all an inside inner life, even it extended out to cyber sex. Is that wrong? Oh, no, that's definitely right, too. I was uh, just describing like some different ways of uh, being gray sexual. But uh, what you just described is also a way of being gray sexual, too. So like people who uh, like are attracted to other people uh, through like pornography or something like that, but they don't like they're like disgusted by the idea of actually doing the act with yes. someone. Yes. Um, yeah. Oh, good. Yeah. And then some people are going to listen to this. I'm telling you, I've heard, you've probably heard this a million times too. Why do we need all these labels? And can you answer that? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, everyone has uh, a different answer to that question. But my answer is like, I believe that we need the labels until we don't need the labels anymore. And what I mean by that is we're asexuality before the year 2000 wasn't in the public consciousness. We used a label and now people are starting to understand the experience of being asexual. Once we build a society that uh, understands that humans can vary in so many different and unique ways, then maybe we don't need the labels as much anymore then, but right now we need them to build awareness. This just clicked for me. I really, really love the way you just said this. What clicks for me is that th these clients are coming in and even just living in the population, forget just therapy, and people are saying to them, what's wrong with you? Why you like this? How could feet be the only thing you like? Don't you want a person? So, you know, we need to get you relational. And these labels are saying, I'm normal. Fuck off. You know, this is what I like. This is who I am. And this can be okay and enough for me. And the label sort of gives them permission. Would you agree with that? Yeah, definitely. I love that. I never thought about that. It makes total sense. And I know that as a therapist, I've been doing this 34 years. There's been many, many, many long, long years that I would do it. People would come in and, you know, because what is true sometimes about a fetish or even a kink, it can be debilitating to the point where the person does want romantic and does want to be out there with a whole person, but they're confined mm -hmm. to the body part, right? So the work is to help them not rid themselves of the fetish. That won't go away, but add to their sexual template. But some people are completely comfortable with this, and they deserve the right to have that space. Exactly. And uh, that, that kind of goes along with like how uh, uh, specifically the APA, because I'm studying to be a psychologist, uh, used to uh, pathologize homosexuality. Um, you know, uh, the way that uh, homosexuality was thought about in the 60s and 70s is the exact same way people are talking about asexuality now, that, oh, we have to save the person from it. They're going to miss out on life. People use that same language to talk about asexual people now, and it's really unfortunate because that is their... That's their true self. That's their true life that exactly. they're trying to live and they're being pathologized by people who are supposed to help them. I discovered recently, and tell me if you know about this, that Kinsey had an N factor or an X factor in his findings. And he, uh, in the 40s, when he did the survey, uh, identified asexuals. Did you know that? Yeah, yeah. That's something that I include when I do uh, presentations. Uh, and I think that's one of the awesome things. Like, 
it's been around for a long time. People have known about asexuality for a long time. It just hasn't been in the public conscious consciousness. Yeah, I like that. Um, so, yeah, yeah. I may have learned it from I you. I may have learned it from you now that I think about it. <laughs> I don't even know where I learned things, but it sounds, if you knew it already, I probably did learn it from you. Tell me, um, just so that people can understand, if they go to a therapist, what are the therapeutic approaches for helping somebody asexual? Yeah, so um, there are a few different approaches that I think can be really helpful. Um, so one is a constructivist uh, approach. So recognizing that everything that we believe exists in our society exists that way because it was constructed that way by society. If we can recognize things that way, that like uh, allosexuality was ascribed as the normal or default uh, uh, sexuality, um, and can appreciate that that's only because of social construction, not because it actually is the normal way of being, mm-hmm. um, then I think that's something that's good for therapists to ascribe to. And uh, definitely feminist multicultural uh, type approaches too, uh, which emphasize the role of intersecting social identities, uh, help clients understand their roles acting in a larger system as environmental resources and strains and power differentials that exist in society and helping the client realize that they do have power mm-hmm. and helping them find that power. Like uh, one of the things that you can ask is like, what is the powerful thing you can do right now? And I, I don't know. I really like using that approach when I'm working with clients Um and uh, a humanistic approach to a uh, study at a humanistic institution and um, taking that Rogerian approach of uh, having an empathic stance toward the person mm. and entering the client's internal frame of reference uh, rather than ascribing your own values or judgments on them. You know, I have had uh, gay male clients who are asexual and hate it. And what they'll say to me in my office is, I shouldn't be this way. I should be like all other gay guys, fucking around, having open marriages, wanting to be fucked, wanting to top, wanting to bottom, all this stuff. But And so then they come to me and they want to learn to do that. They don't like the term asexual. They feel stigmatized in the gay community. And many have had partners who say, I'm okay with you not being sexual with me. I love you and I, I don't want to be with other men that we can make this work and don't have to be sexual and they still feel that kind of shame and one of the clients i worked with one day i said to him he left we um you know terminated he felt like we'd gone as far as we could go and he was going to accept it he came back a second time we tried again to activate what if he was sexual and i just looked at him one day and i said i feel like we're doing reparative therapy for your sexual um, part of yourself, that you are just mm-hmm. asexual. And can it just be okay? Can we? Can you just embrace that? And he just started crying. It's a, There's a lot of shame attached to it for people. Yeah, yeah, there is. And I think that that's because like studies have consistently found that uh, it's about 1% of the population uh, is uh, asexual. So it can be very isolating. That's a smaller number than the people who identify as LGB or transgender or gender non-conforming. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you're that small of a number and you're spread across all sorts of different identities, and what I mean by that is there's asexual transgender uh, folks, asexual cisgender folks, asexual LGB folks, etc., and you're like spreading that 1% across all those different groups, that can be a very isolating experience. And 
that's why it's really important to get social support and um, like explore the resources out there. So what about the idea I've also read that some asexuals can be very sexual in the beginning of a relationship? Like they're walking around asexual all the time. They fall into romantic love. Somehow they are able to uh, – their sexuality gets activated and it might, might go on for a few months, maybe a little bit longer, and then they go back to their normal self, that which is asexual. Have you heard of that? Mm-hmm. Uh, I haven't heard of uh, like that particularly, but I have heard of uh – compromise in um uh asexual allosexual mixed uh relationships so like just like uh compromise can exist in uh kink vanilla mixed uh relationships where like the vanilla uh person in the relationship doesn't necessarily like the kink they'll do it for the pleasure of their partner Mm. and uh asexual people uh can and do um, I don't have the exact uh, percentage from a survey that was done offhand right now, but uh, a, a sizable percent uh, can and do have sex uh, with their partner, uh, but don't derive any pleasure themselves from it. They okay. derive like a secondary pleasure that their partner is deriving pleasure from the activity. Thank you. Can you talk about your current research? What exactly are you researching? Uh, yeah. So one of the things that, uh, I found, so, um, just a moment ago, I talked about like the importance of resources, uh, and community, uh, within, uh, the asexual identity. And, um, one of the things that I found with a survey I did, I did a survey, uh, through AVEN, uh, the Asexual Visibility and Education Network. Uh, and they they can be reached at asexuality.org. Uh, and through, uh, asexual meetup groups, which exist in almost, uh, every major metropolitan area. Mm. Uh, if you just go to meetup.com and type in ace, uh, meetup group or asexuality meetup group, ace is the shorthand term that people in the community use for asexuality. Um, but I distributed a survey through those two, uh, routes and I found that, uh, people who took the survey through those uh, two mediums uh, didn't have any difference in uh, depression or anxiety, Mm. statistically significant difference. There was a difference. It just wasn't statistically different or significant difference. Uh, But um, they didn't have a statistically significant difference between uh, uh, allosexual people uh, when uh, comparing depression and anxiety using the GAD7 and PHQ assessment. So I found that really interesting because it says that they were part of uh, these uh, groups, whether it was a discussion forum online where they were finding community or a meetup group where they're just going to the local cafe and meeting up with other asexual identified people and talking about their experience. Having that is probably something that contributed to uh, them uh, not having uh, a lot worse depression or anxiety than the allosexual people I measured with my survey. Okay. Wow. It sounds really good. Really important. Really a needed addition. So little is out there. What resources exist for people who may have loved ones who identify as asexual or for those who identify as asexual themselves? Yeah. So um, the asexuality.org website there's a discussion forum on there. Uh, people can ask questions. Uh, like they can say, I uh, experienced sexual attraction when X, but 
uh, all the rest of the time I don't. Whatever X is, uh, someone in the forum, there's thousands of people worldwide who go on this website. It's one of the first places people go um, to reach out for support and community. Um, and there's a history of the organization, a history of uh, like when asexuality started coming into the public awareness. Uh, and then, like I said, meetup groups is another really good one. But also for like friends and family, uh, P-flag groups, um, that's one of the things that uh, I've done in the past and I uh, really want to start doing more of is uh, speaking at uh, P-flag uh, chapters mm-hmm. uh, about the importance of like recognizing when uh, children may be asexual and what resources uh, and support uh, parents, uh, friends and family can get them. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I think those are all really great places for people to go for support. I will say that as a therapist, uh, what is hard is when someone comes in and they say they're asexual and they might be, uh, or they might be a trauma survivor, meaning they have had so much sexual trauma, they don't want Mm. to address it. So their sexuality is shut down or they have such low sexual desire that they don't want to deal with it or even try to activate it. So, uh, they identify as asexual. Have you ever heard of that Mm -hmm. and teasing that out in the therapy room is hard? Yeah. Yeah. So that's, so uh, one of the things that there's actually a debate about uh, in uh, the research communities right now. Um, so uh, is someone uh, with potentially uh, what someone diagnosed as sexual aversion disorder or hypoactive uh, sexual desire disorder, uh, are they asexual or not? And uh, that's, um, I take the stance, uh, one of the stances in uh, the community right now of researchers is, let the client self-identify and their identity can be fluid over time. If that's the identity that they ascribe to, don't like try to change that if they're comfortable with it. But if someone comes in and they say, oh, I think I have a uh, low sex drive and I miss being sexual, then you can maybe explore other things with them. But mm-hmm. uh, just like it, approaching it from a pathologizing approach uh, isn't something that I really would do. I like it. And I've learned, you know, I've been doing this 34 years, right? And I've had to change the way I think about so many different things. And I, it continues to change. Like I used to think I knew exactly what I was doing. And I do know a lot about what I'm doing, but not everything I'm doing, it's not so cut and dry. The binary's gone. The um, way of looking at things one way or another, there's so many betweens. And it's always been there. It's just what's nice about asexuality is it's teaching us that this, that this continuum is, 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 uh, is, is there. Let's make it uh, visible, right? Right, exactly. What else would you want to say about asexuality before we wrap up? Any last words? Uh, well, uh, one of the resources I actually uh, realized I forgot to mention, uh, it won a LGBT Indie Book Award. Um, it's this book called The Invisible Orientation, um, and it was written by Decker in 2013, I think. You can get it on Amazon uh, or uh, wherever else, and it's a really good resource. There, it's broken into three different sections. It's broken in. The first section is, I think I might be asexual. Now what? Mm-hmm. And then I think the second section is, I think my family member might be asexual. Now what? Uh-huh. And the third section is, I want to know more about asexuality, but I'm not, and I don't have a family member who is. So it gets a little repetitive if you read the whole book, mm-hmm. but it's a really great book because it's built for three different audiences. 
That's awesome. Thank you so much. Now, where can people find you, Jared? Uh, well, um, people can uh, check out uh, my website uh, at jaredboot.com. Uh, they can uh, follow me on Twitter at Jared Boot. Uh, and I uh, am working part-time at uh, Fowler's and Associates uh, in Ann Arbor right now. Okay. Great. Thank you so much. I knew you'd be a rich resource, and I hope to maybe have you on again and just do more work with you in the future because you're um, a smart guy and you're doing really good work. Thank you so much, Jared. Thank you for having me. Yeah, no problem. Thank you for paying attention to this important subject. Oh, no problem. It's a very important subject. Thank you. See you. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode of Smart Sex, Smart Love. I'm Dr. Joe Court, and you can find me on joecourt.com. That's J-O-E-K-O-R-T.com. See you next time.